Let's go ahead and pray and jump in this morning. Father, uh, real simply, would you help us understand your love for us a little better this morning and help us understand our responsibility to love others a little bit better this morning. And we just would, would humbly ask that. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're jumping back into uh, John this morning, John chapter 8. And uh, it's kind of an interesting passage that we're going to jump into, and we're going to really try and unpack it in some unorthodox ways this morning, because it's an unorthodox, pa- uh, unorthodox passage. And this is what it looks like, or should look like, in your Bible. This is a picture taken out of my archaeology study Bible that I keep in the office. Kip took it for me. Um, and you'll notice it's got something interesting there, highlighted in yellow. It says that uh, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7:53 through 8:11. Well, that's really odd because it's a pretty famous passage. I mean, Mel Gibson put it in his movie, right? Um, it's the woman caught in adultery. Funny thing, um, Grace is going to be singing special. I didn't. I wasn't going to share this, but I can't. I always have to share these things just because I have no restraint. Um, it was funny, like Grace is singing special music and she and Justin were texting back and forth and she's like, what's the sermon on? And Justin wrote back, women caught in adultery. And, you know, she thought, like, I was going to get up here and talk about some women that were caught in adultery. And she's like, awkward, how do I sing special music after that? Um, um, but it's a famous passage and it's famous because it, there's some amazing elements in this passage that really show just the tenderness and the compassion of Christ and the grace. And so it's, it's a, a passage we love. It's a passage that you run into a lot. And what is it doing with these two lines, one above, one below, and then this sentence, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7:53 through 8:11. Well, here's the, um, here's the reality. John didn't write this. And it's not even up for debate. John didn't write it. The Greek shows it. It ended up in a half a dozen different places throughout Luke and John before it finally came to rest, kind of bookended in this little spot. And I want to um, kind of read to you, uh, I'll read to you from Craig Blomberg, who is a very conservative scholar out of Denver Seminary. And this whole book is called The Historical Reliability of John's Gospel. Big fat book on the historical reliability of John's gospel. The woman caught in adultery gets one paragraph. And and I'll read to you why. Contemporary textual critics almost unanimously agree that this famous pericope does not form part of what John originally wrote. It is absent in all the oldest and most reliable manuscripts, and those that do include it sometimes have it in 8, 2 through 11, or 3 through 11, or insert the passage after 736, 21, 24, even Luke 21, 38. There's, it, it, there's more than that, actually. It seems to have been transmitted in, in at least two somewhat different forms. He goes on, and then he says this, Many scholars nevertheless suggest that it may reflect a genuine episode from Jesus' life, preserved in the oral tradition, and then later added to the text by Christian scribes. Later added to the text by Christian scribes because of probably the same reason we love it. They loved it, and, and they wanted to take an event that they believed to be part of the oral tradition and add it in. Well, how did, how did it end up in our Bible? And so we're going to spend a good chunk of time kind of looking at that, and then I think coming out of that, we're going to be able to appreciate it, and we're going to look at it more specifically in context, what it actually says. 
Um, but let's back way up. Okay, so here is the European map. Um, I get to go laser point crazy today. Okay. Um, you'll see right here is uh, Byzantine in Constantinople. So this is before uh, Constantinople falls and the Byzantine Empire disappears after 1,100 years of existence. The Byzantine Empire was largely Asia Minor and Turkey. For a long time, it was the Eastern Empire. This was the Western Empire. And you had a split between Greek-speaking and Latin-speaking. The Roman Catholic Church ends up coming over here. The Greek Orthodox Church ends up being over here. And what happens is um, that these two don't really talk to each other for a very long time. Um, now, when it comes to manuscripts, ancient manuscripts, New Testament manuscripts, there's three families of manuscripts. There's the Byzantine family, there's the Latin family, and then there's the Alexandrian family, um, texts that were preserved in the, in the desert dry climate and are the oldest and most reliable of all the manuscripts we end up with. Now, this area falls um, to, the, to the Muslims later on, and so you really have in the Christian world these two segments. Now, the fascinating thing, I can't remember. Yeah, there you can see Byzantine Empire better. And that's all I had that slide for. Okay, so after Constantinople falls, okay, 1453, the Ottoman Empire kind of comes in and takes us over. But that event in 1453, the fall of Constantinople, changes the history of the West, the history of Europe forever. Um, for the 50 years prior to that, you'd been having a lot of Greek scholars come to this education-rich environment as visiting teachers and professors. Um, and there's this real humanistic trend. The Renaissance is beginning to happen. Most will date it to 1453 as the actual, like, firm date beginning the Renaissance. But people here are loving everything classical, classical Rome and especially classical Greek, the classical world. It's the beginning of humanism. And, and humanism in that sense just means focusing on people and this earth rather than focusing totally on uh, heaven or the afterlife or spiritual things. And so they're really getting into Greek culture, Greek literature, and the humanists, instead of talking about what did Augustine say and what did Aquinas say and debating between authors, they would always want to go back to the original texts in the original languages and exegete or kind of interpret out of those texts what was going on. So you have this real love of everything Greek. It started when um, the Muslims were pushed out of this peninsula here. They had some fascinatingly big libraries that contained Aristotle and Plato and all sorts of ancient Greek writers and texts. And these texts begin to get in here in the early 1400s and everyone gets, it's like the rediscovery of the ancient Greeks and of Aristotle. Everyone gets super excited, right? Well, when this falls, Constantinople falls, manuscripts and texts, biblical ones, Greek ones, that have been that have been absent in the West for hundreds and hundreds of years, all of a sudden these scholars grab their manuscripts and, and migrate over here and then up to here, most of them into Italy, okay, bringing their manuscripts with them. So all of a sudden there's this explosion of Greek um, sources, Greek texts, Greek learning, how to speak the Greek language, read the, the Greek language, and that really adds fire to the Renaissance. So it's, it's famous... Um, for really bringing this in. So if you go to Italy, Rome, 
you're going to begin to understand that everything is influenced by the classical world. So the birth of Venus, Botticelli's kind of famous painting, and, um, and this is actually called the, the School of Athens by Raphael. Raphael didn't call it the School of Athens. It was a tour book for the Vatican that first named it that. But this is on the wall in one of the Pope's rooms, one of the Renaissance Pope's rooms. This is the door. So if you've ever seen this painting, it's actually a fresco on a wall. It's, it's fascinating. You go to the other wall, like on this side, and you can see something really cool. Or, well, it depends on if you're Catholic or not. Um, but like uh, after Luther, like you know, a couple decades after Luther, the Holy um, Roman Empire, a bunch of Germans and whatnot spill over the Swiss mountains, and they take over Rome, and the Pope kind of flees and hides in that building, the fortress, um, if you saw angels and demons. It's like the round building, you know, with the passageway. I mean, the guy actually fled and, like, held up there for two weeks. Um, but right across from his room, in his bedroom here, you can see Luther, like, scratched into the wall. It's pretty wild. I mean, it doesn't mean anything. But, um, but look at um, the School of Athens here has Plato pointing to the heavens and Aristotle pointing to the earth um, next to each other. And, and so... And then a third of these people are ancient Greek, even prior to, like, the, the pre-Socratics and mathematicians that are in this painting. And this is in the Pope's rooms, right? Um, a year and a half, so a year from this fall, Antioch, through Killens College, is going to do a Reformation history trip. It's going to be super cool. So um, Germany, Switzerland, and then Florence and Rome. And so you can, like, start planning now, and you could, like, see this. It would be kind of cool. Um, so everything's kind of Greek, and, and so um, the Renaissance begins, it changes art, it changes culture, it changes education. Here's the really interesting thing, though. A lot of these manuscripts end up up here, which the German areas are really focused on um, education, academy, and they're able to do a lot more things because they're further away from Rome, there's a little bit more leeway, and this guy named Erasmus, Erasmus of Rotterdam, he would have been born up in this area. Um, he begins to take these Greek manuscripts and he's updating the Latin Vulgate. Latin Vulgate was written by Jerome, um, published the early 400s, really early 400s, and was the authoritative text for the, the Roman Catholics. And Erasmus is going gonna, is gonna to update the Latin and make it a little bit better. And he publishes the Greek from a bunch of different manuscripts on the opposing side. And the interesting thing is, like, some places he didn't have the Greek. He translated from the Latin back into the Greek and, and other things like that. But it's the first time you get an entire Greek New Testament printed. Gutenberg's printing press, circa 1440, um, the Bible a little bit later. The first time you get printed a Greek New Testament. Why is that important? It's important because he had a limited number of manuscripts, and all his manuscripts came from the Byzantine family of manuscripts. Okay? And so he publishes the New Testament in Greek, um, and it's got this passage in it because the Byzantine family, let, you know, uh, 500, 600, 700s, the ones he would have had probably would have been from the 900s and 1000s, really late manuscripts, and it's got this passage in John 8 in it, okay? It was also one of the first texts to have it was the Latin Vulgate. So in the Catholic Church, this passage is canonical, which means it's a part of Scripture. Why? It's a part of Scripture because it's in Jerome's Vulgate, Latin Vulgate, and that is the authorita authoritative text. Therefore, 
this passage has to be scripture for the Roman Catholic Church. Okay? So he puts it in his thing, um, and he goes through a couple revisions of it in his lifetime, four or five. And that text, the Greek text that Erasmus puts out with this Byzantine family of manuscripts, becomes known as the Textus Receptus, the received text. Now, Luther uses it in translating uh, the German. Um, Tyndall comes over here, hides from Henry VIII. Well, um, Tyndall is to Henry VIII what Luther was to the Pope. And he comes over here and hides from the Pope, goes and travels to Worms in Germany, um, and comes back here and in Antwerp, kind of publishes his English New Testament using um, a combination of Luther's German and the Textus Receptus and Erasmus's Latin. Okay? So now in the English Bible, you've got, in John 8, the woman caught in adultery passage. Now, how does that end up coming into our Bible? Well, what happens is, when you read the Bible for yourself, um, back in those days, the religious authority structures never wanted anyone to read the Bible for themselves. Why? Because if you read the Bible for yourself, you begin to realize that the authority structures that were set up then um, were not biblical authority structures. And you begin to realize that God has empowered the believing people, the Christians, through the Holy Spirit to be able to come directly to Him. In, in Hebrews it says, to be able to come boldly before the throne. So you, you begin to read in your, in your own language the scriptures. You begin to be against kind of a tyrannical religious authority that tries to control you. And so the, the papacy and Henry VIII, who had kind of started his own little church, they didn't like people reading it for themselves because they, would, they uh, wouldn't be subservient, right? So they try to burn books. They try to um, keep people from publishing these things and all this other stuff. But what happens is Tyndall's New Testament is so prevalent in England that by the time of um, King James, so it goes Queen Elizabeth, then King James, she doesn't have a direct heir. He's king of Scotland, um, related to her a little bit, uh, not directly, but a little bit off. So they make him king of England as well. He comes down 1603 and... Um, is now king of both, and he realizes the best way to do this is not to fight it, but to get a, an authorized version that, that will kind of say, this is the authorized version, then we take control of the situation, we'll have our own thing, and then we'll make all the other ones kind of illegal, and we'll get the best scholars to kind of make that thing. So 1611, the King James Bible, um, Shakespeare lived during the time of uh, Queen Elizabeth, so I mean, 1611, Right on the heels of Shakespeare, it's, it's Elizabethan English, 1611. So if you've ever read the King James, the yees and the thous and the these, and, and you get that, okay? Um, but this Bible, they tried to, to keep in line with what had gone before. So they take Tyndall's Bible. So here's this guy that's chased and eventually caught and killed as a heretic. And the funny thing is, a little bit later, they take his Bible, and it's the springboard for the King James Bible. So a lot of the famous passages, um, eye for an eye, and, and English phrases that are in the Bible were Tyndall's English that then made them their way into King James 1611. Um, and the King James 1611 used Tyndall's English but took their Greek from the Textus Receptus, the received text. So the King James Version, sanctioned by um, King James, obviously, becomes known in English as the authorized version because it's the one that was sanctioned. The other versions are not authorized. Does that make sense? Okay. So this has 
John 8 in it. Why? Because it was in Erasmus's text. Why? Because Erasmus took a body of, of uh, Byzantine manuscripts that were late and built his um, Greek New Testament around it. And it has come down to us because why? People don't like taking things out of the Bible of previous editions. It's awkward. Everyone knows this passage. It's famous. They love it. And so you're going to go publish a new version. So even though for 100 years we've known that this wasn't written by John, when you're going to publish a new version, you don't want to like take it out completely and have people be like, where's that passage? So they've always decided to kind of just like discreetly put lines there and say, hey, this really wasn't found in the earliest manuscripts. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so where do we go with that? The reason I'm going through this is, is for this reason. The church does a bad job of explaining things just matter-of-factly. So the Catholic Church would shy this subject altogether because it's canonical, and so let's not talk about it. And what happens when we do that, and we do the same thing, I think, in the Protestant traditions. When we don't talk about these things. Um, people don't know about them. And then they go on in life, and all of a sudden one day they hear that this story they were told as a child or that they love um, really wasn't written by John, and it absolutely freaks them out. Well, if I can't trust that, first off, I feel like you've been lying to me. Second off, what can I trust? Does that, does that make sense? So I think there's a lot of people in the, in the world in America that, that feel this suspicion with religious authorities that there's secrets all in the basement of the Vatican and, and, and they're hiding things from us and, and holy cow, you know, I mean, is this built on, on, on sand and what's going on? And people lose their faith over things like this and it's not something awkward, really. It's not. And so we just teach it matter-of-factly, and what we say is, hey, this is how it happened. Now, in the Alexandrian family of texts, the earliest and the oldest, it wasn't there. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you take the Byzantine family of texts, and you play telephone game, oh, hey, Josh, I'm dead, by the way, so, on my little toy. So I'll have to tell you when you... Um, <laughs> you guys aren't as good as you think you are. Um, um, anyways, um, okay, telephone games. So you, got, you guys know this, this, right? You know, you, you go through a bunch of series and then it all comes out weird. You know, it's like, you know, Johnny likes Sally and after 10 people, it's like Johnny likes Friedrich, and Friedrecha um, or something and, and totally different than Sally, right? Um, after like 10 people, say you take and play that game through a couple hundred revisions. And you have a couple things different, but the message is, is spot on exactly the same. No doctrines, no major teachings of the church are changed at all in the Byzantine text. Okay? There's nothing that, that, that is dissonant with the theology and the doctrines of the church. Okay? And you get all the way to the end, what would you say about that telephone game? You'd say, wow, that's pretty remarkable. Now, if you take and do two telephone games side by side, and you get to the end, and this one's got a couple things different, this one's got it even more accurate, and they basically say the same thing, okay, and corroborate each other, and, and there's only, by the way, two places 
end of the Gospel of Mark, and then this place in John 8, where there's a section um, like that that is different. So the whole of the New Testament, there's only two kind of little stories or little pieces that are different between the two families of texts. Okay? So if you play the telephone game, two texts, they say the same message, um, and, and they corroborate each other, and there's this one thing different that's not a part of the story. It's still Sally that's liked by, uh, who did I say to begin with? Um, Johnny or whatever, right? Um, what would you say about that telephone game? You'd say, wow, that's pretty amazing and pretty reliable. The message is corroborated, and, it's, and, it, and we can know what was originally said. This is pretty crazy accurate. And so the idea that's in question here is when we feel like, wow, this wasn't written by John, and we freak out, can I trust anything? We're beginning to doubt the superintendence of Scripture, that God has superintended, which means he's babysat the transmission of Scripture through time to keep it accurate. And we're like, man, if that passage isn't true, what isn't true? Boy, at all, who can count any of it? And now I doubt Scripture, and I don't believe that God's really superintended it through time. If we really talk about these things, we can see that there's an amazing story here of God superintending Scripture through time. We also make a really silly American mistake. The, the Catholic Church doesn't deal with this because... The Vulgate is the authoritative text, or was the authoritative text through all these centuries. We're not going to back up on that. Even though if you read the preface, it's amazingly long, and it's weird English, and it's hard, but even if you read the preface of the 1611 King James, they're arguing to people saying why it's okay for them to translate it into English. They're arguing against people saying, no, leave it in the Greek, leave it in the Latin. They're saying, no, there's a reason for this. And they even say, and others will come behind us, and improve upon what we do. Okay? So this isn't the, the final text. But what happens is, is people begin to think that, that uh, the English-speaking peoples are kind of like God's chosen people. America for a long time had this pride that we were like the, prom the new promised land. I mean, we really did. And, and that we were the beacon of, of, of God's people to the world. And we were going to send out all the missionaries and, and all this stuff. And our text was the King James 1611. And it became to us what the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate, was to the Roman church. Does that make sense? And we can't mess with that. And so we don't want to back up on that. It's got to be final. It can't be a part of ongoing um, tidying up the English and new translations that are better. It, it's got to be final. And that's a prideful thing. We had Emmy, the Romanian intern up here two weeks ago, and he told us that for almost 100 years, um, Romanians had one Romanian Bible translated by one person. And we all go, oh, that's too bad, but isn't it sweet that they at least had a Bible? And, you know, and we kind of in our minds go, you know what, it probably wasn't as good as our Bible, but you know what, I bet the message was still accurate. That's so great for them, you know. But we're Americans. Ours is, our stuff is always, you know, roses and perfect. And so there's this pride going on when we talk about our Bible and the amazing corroboration between these stories and these telephone games and the, all this stuff, and then we can look at that... Um, the accuracy through time and how God has done this. And it's this cool story. Instead of seeing that, what do we see? We kind of go, oh, I don't like that. 
I'm American. Mine wasn't supposed to have a passage in there that wasn't in there. You know, it, it ruins it all. It's like I had a 100% on the SATs and I just missed a question. Um, I was supposed to have 100%. And it's a little bit of Western arrogance, to be honest with you. And if we don't talk about these things, instead of having confidence in, in the New Testament scriptures, we actually begin to lack confidence. Again, I told you a couple weeks ago, we've got a, um, coming up in February, we've got an apologetics conference on um, the reliability of the New Testament. Blomberg, that I just read from, is going to be here. And the only guy he quotes in his one paragraph that he gives on this passage is this guy, Daniel Wallace, who's the other guy that's going to be speaking at that conference. Um, so pretty cool stuff that way. But our Bible is reliable and trustworthy. This passage, and Wallace says it, I'm going backwards. Again, sign up for that trip. Um, there's Erasmus. By the way, you notice like um, Tyndall kind of went to Holland. Erasmus was from Holland. Um, side note, good, good people come from Holland. Um, uh, all right, so that's the first section. Uh, I want to now talk about, oh man, I'm not going to play with gadgets anymore. There we go. Um, I want to talk about what it actually says. Because here's the fascinating thing about this passage. Is, is it dovetails and it's synonymous with lots of other passages throughout Scripture. Daniel Wallace, when asked the question, is this authoritative, says there's two different um, things going on here. He says there's a literal question and then there's a historical question. Literally, John did not write this. The Greek is different, yada, yada, we went through that. Historically, it probably dates back to an oral tradition of something that Jesus probably did. And you begin to see in it the marks of Christ that we know from a lot of different other things, the similarities. And in a little bit, we're going to talk about another passage um, that kind of says the same message. But I want to read it to us real quick. Then he went to his own home after this other passage, and this is where it goes. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. That's not true. Uh, the law of Moses commanded to stone such women if it, uh, it's, if it was a certain kind of woman, betrothed to be married, yada, yada, yada. Um, but they generalize it. Now what do you say? Now, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Um, if he says, don't stone her, he's in violation of the law of Moses. If he says stone her, he's in violation of the law of Rome. It's a really fascinating thing. Um, Pilate took away the, the right to capital punishment for the Jews, um, took it away as a way of kind of removing power and authority from them. And I look at that and I say, isn't it amazing how right when Jesus is going to come on the scene and probably would have been killed like day one, um, God kind of arranges for that um, cor like corporate punishment um, to be taken away. I mean, how did Jesus go on for as many years as he did? I think God like arranged it um, so that Jesus could, could fly under the radar and whatnot. But Pilate had taken away the ability for them to do that. So if Jesus says stoner, he's violating the law of the land. If he says doesn't stoner... Um, he's violating the law of Moses. They're trying to put him on the horns of a dilemma. Um, they think they've got him. And this is where Jesus goes with it. 
he bends down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Nobody knows what Jesus wrote. Um, it's like everyone loves to debate it, but no one knows what Jesus wrote. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, and I love how Jesus never asks, answers the question that's asked. He always answers the correct question. And he says to them, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And as he's doing this, the people begin to disappear. Those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older and wiser probably ones first until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there, and Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus isn't sanctioning sin. He says to her, I mean, go and don't do this again. You have so much of a better life ahead of you if you be unified or united or in relationship with God, not pursuing your own life and in sin. And so he's not sanctioning sin. He says, go and leave your life of sin. I need three volunteers. And, and because of the nature of the subject, I want all guys. Um, and I need a tall guy. So Matt Smith, if no one else volunteers, it's you. Um, but I need three guys, and one of them's got to be tall. All right, Matt and two other guys. All right. I got two. I just need a third. There's the third. Okay, sweet. All right, so come up here. I'm going to try and illustrate this um, as we move forward. Okay. Matt's stand on this side over here on the left. And you guys just stand shoulder to shoulder, not too close, but there you go. No, that's a little too close. But, um, all right, and don't touch him. He's God. Um, so, so this is God, and he's taller than, see that? Okay, and this is people, okay? Um, this is a person that happens to be doing okay better than this person. This person's right now not doing as good as that person, and they can interchange, but they're always going to be to the right of God, because good to bad on a decreasing scale that begins like about here and then decreases, okay? So um, here's the story. Um, these people right here catch this person, and they're going to pass judgment on that person. And they forget two things, their position and their purpose. And forgetting their position, what they do is they stand like this, put themselves on God's team, and judge this person. Now, the first thing with forgetting the position here is, um, you guys remember Karate Kid? There's that guy, like, it's like a laughing hyena throughout the movie, and he's, and there's, I think it's Johnny's the main guy in Karate Kid, and at the end, he's like, get him, Johnny, get him, you know, and it's like he thinks he's Johnny, like, you know, he's, he's living vicariously through the, you know, that other bad guy, um, but he's not Johnny. You know, it's like the skinny guy at Lambeau Field with, like, Green Bay Packers stuff, like, on his chest. And he's trying to high-five the 300-pound lineman as they're walking down the tunnel. We did it! We did it! There's, there's no we about it, man. There's no we about it. Um, and we forget our position when we do this. And there's something really interesting going on here, and we do this all the time, okay? And, and I've said it before, and hear me when we do this. We draw a line in the sand, and we put good on this side and evil on that side. 
we're the good guys, those are the bad guys, and we're here to punish them or to tell them that they're bad. And we miss our position because the reality is we are all sinners and fallen short of the glory of God. The line between good and evil goes right down the center of every person's heart. So we mistake our position here. Okay? Um, second thing is we mistake our, our purpose. And our purpose here, um, we think it is to judge and condemn. And it's really to love and to extend grace and to help lift and encourage and bring other people up. Okay? That's our purpose. So the idea is if we stand here, we realize we're sinners too. Has any of you not sinned? Uh, let me check. Yeah, I've sinned. Okay. Um, then don't throw a stone because that guy's sinned too. And so our purpose here is to realize that we are all equal under God. We're all to the right of God. And so we are to um, be united with each other and pull each other up. Okay? This person here was created by God. God cares about this person. 1 John 4, 7, and 8. Now, if I can't, I can never remember verses when I'm up here, so help me if I'm not. But it's like, uh, Beloved, let us love one another, for love comes of God. He who does not, um, he who does, loves God has been born of God. He who does not love God is not of God, for God is of love, or God is love. That's um, Textus Receptus. Um, <laughs> he who does not love um, is not of God. Why? Because God is love. God is love. When Solomon, remember the wisest guy ever, you guys are going to be chilling the whole time, so just settle in, okay? Um, when Solomon was brought two women that had one baby, one, one of their babies had died, the other one hadn't, and they're both fighting and claiming the baby, and Solomon's supposed to be the wisest man ever, and he says, okay, let's cut the baby in two and give each half, and it's not that Solomon was just, you know, lazy and, and didn't care about babies. He knew that the one whose child it was would love it so much that they'd rather give it up than have it be hurt, and the one who didn't care was going to think more about themselves well, at least I'm not going to be the only one that has a dead baby. I mean, you see what's going on here? And so Solomon knew, I can get to the heart of who understands this relationship by, by threatening this. And sure enough, the, the real mom says, look, just let the other lady have it then. And Solomon says, ah, it's her kid. Okay? We, we are all God's children. And when we mistake our purpose and we think we're here to judge or to condemn, we lose sight of the value of people to God. We lose sight of the value of people to God, that God is not wanting people punished. I mean, have you ever, like, um, found that person with little kids that just, just takes joy and, like, no, no, eh, eh. And they, they're not, I mean, they have no desire to, like, raise up the kids. They just power trip. It's fun for them, controlling and stuff like that. Well, when we lose sight of love, we lose sight of that everyone is God's and belongs to him, okay? Um, then we just get into this judging thing. Rather than like, hey, I'm trying to get you to go the right way. I care about you. Go and sin no more. Let me extend grace. You know what? I'm not perfect too. We lose sight of our purpose. So we lose sight of our position. We lose sight of our purpose. There's a... A saying that I got from my C.S. Lewis professor when I was in grad school, and he said this, he said, there's two kinds of people in this world. Um, those who are goofy and know it, and those who are goofy and don't know it, and they're dangerous. Okay? This person, when this person understands 
you know, I'm not perfect either, man. I got my own stuff. And looks at this guy and says, well, you know what? You're in good company. I'm not perfect either. You're not perfect. Great. It's a good thing we're, we're both under a gracious God. Goofy and knows it. Humility, right? If we are goofy and don't know it, we think we're more than we really are. And then we look at other people and we see their flaws. And we're like, oh, how can I be in the presence of such a sinner? Um, what was me? Um, I need to go take a bath. Um, you know, clean myself kind of thing. But uh, if you are goofy and you don't know it, you're not aware of your own pride, your own blindness. And then you see flaws in other people, you will attack it and you will judge it because you will look down on them as being less than you. Does that make sense? Okay, let's go to this Matthew 18. Stay here. Um, Matthew 18, this other parable of Jesus, says essentially the same thing. Um, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began to set, uh, the settlement, a man who owned him 10,000 talents was brought to him. 10,000, that's a big debt brought to God here. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Man, um, you're screwed. Um, all of you is wiped out. And look at what he does. Next slide. The servant, you don't have to do this, but he fell on his knees before the master and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay back everything. And the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. He didn't put him on a payment plan. He canceled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found that one of his fellow servants owed him like a couple pennies. And he grabbed him, and you don't have to do it again, but he began to choke him, and pay, he says, Pay me back what you owe, he demands. Next slide is... Um, his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But this guy, forgetting what has gone on, refused. Instead he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. And this is what the master does. Master called the servant in, the middle guy says, you wicked servant. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy, grace on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. And this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. So God cancels the debts. God gives grace. God allows. God holds up, God throws mercy on this person. And the idea is that this person then would take and show the same kind of mercy, same kind of forgiveness, same kind of love to this person as he did. God is love. And if we don't love, we are not born of God. When this person turns to judge, squares up, what does he do in that very moment? turns his back on God. When we go to condemn and get someone in our sights, we turn our back on God. When we have God here and people here, 
we understand who we are in relation to God, and we begin to realize who other people are, not only in relation to us, but also to God, people that God cares about, that he wants to, to grow into this wonderful relation. Here's the thing. Jesus says in, in John, you can square back up this way. Jesus says in John chapter 10, we're going to get to it in a couple months, um, I'm the good shepherd. Okay? The thief comes only to kill and destroy, to take away life. I, the good shepherd, have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I, I've, I'm the shepherd that comes and wants to build this thing up, grow it up, nurture these people, love on these people. I care about them. I want it to grow. It belongs to me. I value it. Jesus doesn't want the baby to be cut in two. At all. Jesus says, I'd rather you guys walk away from me as a prodigal with the chance that you might come back, but I don't want to condemn you. I came to die so that you wouldn't have to be condemned. Jesus' whole reason in coming was so that he could die on the cross so that the law part is taken out of the way and the grace part is what we now exist in or live in. The gospel is this. Jesus dying so that we could exist in the context of grace. We have the law naturally written into us. We naturally like to judge and condemn. Forgiveness does not come easy. So we default to the Old Testament where people are punished and they don't, they don't, they don't meet the standard. And we like it because it makes us feel higher and closer to God. And what we don't realize is the thing that connects us with God is not that we're better than this person. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus died for us, that he brought us to God. Nothing to do with ourselves, like, like uh, Justin was talking about this morning. And when we understand the gospel, we don't want to apply the law to somebody else. Instead, we want to turn to them and extend the same kind of grace that was given to us. See, grace moves. Every time someone sins or makes a mistake, it is an opportunity to judge or to forgive. It is an opportunity to condemn or to extend grace. It is an opportunity to cut off relationship or build the height of relationship, which is love and nurture even when people don't deserve it and sometimes don't want it. Every opportunity to be against is an opportunity to be for. Does that make sense? Everyone in your life, the people that you want to be against, the people that are against you, all of that is an opportunity for you to apply the law or for you to apply grace. It's all throughout the New Testament. It's all throughout Scripture that this is the context in which we live. And when we don't do that, we become hopelessly hypocritical. And at least this culture in America views the church as hypocrites. Um, Shakespeare says, God has given you one face and you go and create for yourself another. God has given you one face and you go and create for yourself a mask another, you're goofy and you don't know it because you're hiding behind this thing. You think the line between good and evil is between you and this guy, not in and of you, and you, you lose sight of the opportunity like a good shepherd, like someone that cares about the good shepherd, to take this person and help them have life. Does that make sense? At Antioch, we started this church. You guys can go um, sit down, and we're, we're finishing here. We started this church and we had a couple driving commitments. 
and we got the name Antioch from these driving com commitments, but one of them is authentic spirituality. And the idea was in the church of Antioch back in that day, there were some people, because of the law, that wouldn't go eat with other people because they were, they were Gentiles. They were messy lives and pagans, and they, they weren't as clean or pretty or whatever, or didn't know as much about the Bible. And so they were following the law by not eating or sharing meals with those people, not fellowshipping with the Gentile. And that community in the New Testament times had to wrestle that through and go, you know, how, now that Christ has come and forgiven us all and brought grace, how do we deal with this? And what they ended up doing was they ended up saying, you know what, grace triumphs over law. Grace triumphs over law. Relationship and unity wins out over rules and judgment. And we need to be together because we are all God's people or we're all his children or he cares about all for God so loved the world. So our law or our regulation is less than that. Jesus came to get rid of that kind of law, ceremonial law. And so they, they went into authentic community with each other. And so we call that at Antioch authentic spirituality. So whether we preach topically or verse by verse, whether we sing hymns or other songs, whether we do communion once a year, once a quarter, every day. It doesn't matter what the ritualistic things we do are, we're not going to let those things, or laws, or, or purity, or externals, or masks, or any of it, outweigh our command to love other people. Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. He meant it. He didn't say, judge him, judge him, judge him, and then when you feel like it, maybe throw a little love in there. He said, a new command I give you. This is your job. Realize who you are. Be goofy and know it. And love others. If we could just grasp that authentic spirituality, what this church is built on, just think of the testimony that that would be to people that don't know God. Jesus says, this is how people are going to know that you belong to me your love for each other. The gospel is this, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Father, uh, we just, we want to confess, I, I want us to confess um, and be honest with ourselves and with you that we fall short. We're not all that we would lead ourselves to believe or lead other people to believe. We, we become hypocritical so easily. I just pray that you'd take us from behind ourselves where we're hidden and put us in front of ourselves where we can see our own weaknesses and our own flaws. That we would not get carried away with who we are in terms of status or position and throw ourselves on your team and make everybody else on the other team and, and lose sight of what you have us here to do. To reach those that you love. To nurture, to take care, to give life, to love to forgive, to extend grace. Let us not um, be okay with the baby cut in two. Let us realize that, that lives are precious. They deserve the same grace that we ourselves have received from you. Father, challenge us to learn what it means to really love, not just to talk about it, not just to sprinkle it on here and there like salt on food, but to just be immersed in it, to make it a part of every day and... and uh, every sentence and, and our facial expressions and everything, just that we would be known as those who love, that we
that we are filled with love, that our identity would be like yours. You are love, that we might be love as well. Our very identity. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.